Philippians chapter 2. Going to continue in our, our sermon series as we consider all that it means for us as a church to be together. Now, we convictionally as a church believe in biblical exposition, which means systematically, intentionally, purposefully walking through Scripture as it was written. And so that normally means in the normal context of normal church life, that is a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter, book-by-book style and type of teaching and preaching. But this month, what we've tried to do uh, to uncover some of the why and, and the motivations for why we are together as a church, it's taken the form and looks a little bit more like topical exposition, which means we're taking a topic and exposing the topic through different pieces of of scripture. And today we want to continue to do that because we believe all throughout the New New Testament we see this picture of togetherness that's captured in the one another commands of the New Testament. We began this journey by declaring and seeing in scripture that we are the body of Christ and we are made up of many members, but many members are held together in one body. And so for the past few weeks we've seen how we are together in unity, we are together in love, and today, this morning, we will see how we are together in humility. And the call that we have to be together in this posture of humility is, is captured well and relatively comprehensively throughout different portions of Scripture, uh, both old and new. And so what we'll do is kind of weave this narrative together to capture the heart of the church and the heart of the Christian and show how in the context of Scripture that that is supposed to be a heart of Humility. So together we will see how we are together in humility by considering this morning that Jesus is our example of humility, that the Bible is our source of humility, and thirdly and finally how the church is our place of humility, that God calls us to this and then he places us in the church and calls us to live out these one another's in a way that we demonstrate the humility of Christ within us. So that's our aim this morning. Let's go to the Lord in in, in prayer as we seek him in this task. Father, none of us in and of ourselves and in of our own mind and in of of our own insight, God, are capable of doing what your spirit can do through the power and truth of your word. And so, God, we want to come and humbly before you now, God, we want to ask you in the words of this great Puritan prayer this morning, Father. What we know not, God, teach us. What we have not, God, give us. And what we are not, Father, please make us. By the power of your spirit and the truth of your word this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Humility. You hear about it. You know about it. You probably don't want to spend too much time thinking about it. Uh, it's hard. It's convicting. It's, it's challenging. And if we take the, the truth of humility and look at it from a cultural standpoint, we can see how humility would be confusing for many, challenging to apply for many. But what we see is it's the call of the Christian. It's the call of the church to live our lives in these particular ways to demonstrate this truth because it's true of God. It's true of God in Christ and it's true of the sacrificial death on the on the cross for us all modeled in humility. But if we have seen the Christian life unfold and if you've seen maybe your life unfold, one truth that we know or have seen experientially is this that there is a true false humility, one that looks good and humble on the outside, 
but on the inside is motivated by pride in some senses where we can manufacture this external posture with a poor internal motive. And what we see in the context of Scripture, as Jesus can only do, is he brings that together holistically. And so what we want to do today as a church, that we are people of the book, we are people of the Bible, we believe the Bible, we seek to obey the Bible, and so we turn to the Bible to help us understand this idea and, more importantly, how we can obey the truth of Scripture in the context of our lives and in the context of our church together. And so we begin, as we should, by considering how Jesus is our example of humility. I want to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll spend more time in this text here in a couple weeks. But there are a couple of verses here that illustrate this point powerfully for us this morning. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Action-packed verses here for us put on display this morning, Philippians chapter 2. And what they say about the humility of Christ is this, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, we should count others as more significant than Ourselves. The idea of counting is literally like taking attendance. If you were to start on this side of the room and count the number of, of people within the room with every single number that you count off, it's the idea and the intentionality that you are counting them as more significant than yourself. I, I, I love the definition of humility and the picture of humility that every single room you walk into, that you are the least significant person in that room. And that's true because you are intentionally and purposely obeying Philippians chapter 2, that you are counting others more significant than yourself. And that's not to say that you are not significant. It's to say that others are more significant in the weight and balance of who we are in Christ. And so we are to consider not only our own interests. It's not that we don't have interests is what Paul writes here. It's not that you don't have interests and you just need to diminish your own interests. He says, no, no, no. Have your interests, consider not only your interests, but also the interests of, of others. And so we're presented kind of with this balancing scale. But yeah, we have these passions and desires and interests and things that God's placed on our heart. But we also recognize that every other person in our family, every other person in our church has equally these same passions and desires that God has placed upon them. And we're called in the Christian life and humility to kind of weigh the balance of those things. 
that yes, we count them, we consider them, not only ours, but others. So how do we do this? As the argument unfolds in Philippians chapter 2, we do it with the mind of Christ. That's what Paul writes. The mind of Christ, the mind that did not count equality as his goal. But what did he do? He emptied himself by becoming a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He emptied himself by becoming a servant here on the earth. The, the, the God's son, the son of God who walked the face of the earth, emptied himself by becoming a servant. The one who deserved to be served became a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see, he is our example of humility in, in the Christian life. He is the picture for the way in which we are to live, this Christ-like humility in the world around us. So what did Jesus humble himself to? Have you ever thought about that? Yes, he humbled himself. Yes, the text is clear. What did he humble himself to? Because I think this is the application in Philippians chapter 2 for us. He humbled himself in verse 8 to obedience. He became obedient, but not just a little bit of obedience. He became obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. In this moment, like in this transaction, what exactly was he obeying? Two things, I think, for us this morning. He was obeying the word of God. If you have, and I'm sure you have, you heard, and I'm sure you've heard, all the Old Testament prophecies that were pointing towards the cross of Christ. The Old Testament narratives, the Old Testament pictures of law and sacrifice, all of those things were pointing to the true and better sacrifice of Jesus, that he would come and he would be the ultimate and final sacrifice on the cross for our sins. So you see, the word of God, the Old Testament prophecy was pointing to this very moment where Christ would become obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Isaiah 53 says that he was a lamb to be slaughtered. The picture here is that Christ was coming into the world and as he was living this Philippians chapter 2 life, he was doing so in a way that was obedient to the word of God. That Literally from, from Genesis into the Gospels, when we see this sacrificial act of Christ on the cross take place in the context of Scripture, that all of that was pointing to this moment where he became sin for us, the penalty and punishment for our sin. That in this act, Jesus was being obedient to the word of God. But secondly, he was also being obedient to the will of God. So we see scripture, and, and scripture is not just a, a recipe for Jesus to follow. Like in these moments, in these pieces, and in these places, what we have is he was following the sovereign will of his father. That Jesus, every single step of the way, was being obedient to the will of God. You see, it was the will of God who sent his sinless son into a sinful world to pay the penalty that our sin rightly deserves through his sacrificial death on the cross for us and to rise from the dead three days later to forever defeat the power of sin. And the great truth of the gospel is that that act was for you. And that act was the will of God before the foundation of the world. And so we see Christ on the cross for you in this Philippians 2 passage when he became obedient 
even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he was obeying the word of God and he was obeying the will of God. I emphasize that and reveal that to show and to share that our humility also has a target. It's not nebulous. It's not just open-ended. Like our humility is in obedience to the word of God and to the will of God. So when we are living this life, cultivating this within us, it's not up to us to figure out how exactly it works or how exactly it looks. Like God has given us in the context of scripture, his, his word and his will, and then he calls us to live a life of obedience unto it. Obedience to the word of God and to the will of God. And if you take this into consideration, consider some things we know about Jesus' life. When he was teaching his disciples to pray, he teaches them, thy kingdom come. What's the next phrase? Thy what? Will be done. You see, he saw his heart. He saw his ministry as executing the will of his father. Or perhaps the garden of Gethsemane bleeding and sweating these drops of of blood. He prays to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And you see, it's in this humility, in this picture of Christ's likeness, where he took this that he did not rightly deserve to take, and he did so in obedience. And it's at this place that we can enter into this and, and, and join these prayers that perhaps a model and picture of the humility of our heart is joining him in, in the prayer. Thy kingdom come, or thy will be done. Or maybe in that moment of frustration or in that moment of despair or not knowing where else to turn, you can look to God on your knees before him and say, not my will, but yours be done. It's the picture, it's the call of humility. And that's true. It's true in your family. It's true in your marriage. It's true in your friendships. It's, it's true in your ministry. It's true in our church that we collectively come together and we cry out to God, God, not my will, but yours be done. And it's out of the overflow of that prayer and out of the overflow of that heart that we begin to cultivate within us a desire for humility that doesn't diminish our own will, but it lifts our eyes above our own will so that we can see the redemptive purposes of God throughout all creation. This week, as we were discussing this text in our, in our staff meeting, uh, we were talking about humility and how do we describe it and define it. And, 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 and Matt offered this definition or picture of humility. He said, it is the active pursuit of someone else's interest. That's what humility is. When we walk into a relationship, when we walk into church, it is the active pursuit of someone else's interest. It's not a passive pursuit. Like Christ on the cross for you was not a passive activity for him. It wasn't just what he woke up and did that day. It was very intentional and very purposeful. And the picture of humility, Jesus as our picture of humility is a picture that every single thing was intentional and purposeful for you. It was active pursuit of your own interest. So how do we take this truth and apply it to, in our own perspective, very minimal or trivial circumstances of our life? I think what we see here is humility is the belief that Christ is more glorious than this particular context or this particular circumstance. It's the heart. In moments of frustration, in moments of despair, in the moments where I think I know better than everyone else in the world, It's the humility to say that even if I'm right in this, or even if I'm wrong in this, 
that Christ is more glorious than this. And that's the heart of, of, of the prayer that we see Jesus make in the garden. Like, God, I, 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 I'm willing to do this. I don't really want to do this. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As he was teaching his disciples to pray, it's the heart of the prayer life of the Christian. So often we pray that my kingdom would come and that my will be done. And yes, we might baptize that in church language, but the heart of those prayers So often we pray for our own things and not submit our things to the will and word of God. It's the picture for us of humility, that Jesus is for us our example. And because that's true, we can obey his word and obey his will. And in so doing, we are practicing, we are rehearsing and being an example of humility. So first, Jesus is our example of humility. And second, the Bible is our source of humility. Flip to the Old Testament with me. A powerful verse, Isaiah 66, verse 2. It's in the context of a powerful chapter in Isaiah 66. Isaiah writes, All these things my hand has made, and so all things, all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In verse 1 of this chapter, the Lord says, The earth is my footstool, heaven is my throne. I have made all that you see. And because that's true here, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And trembles at my word. The picture of the sovereign God of the world and how he looks upon us is found in these verses. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. The great hope for us is that God does not merely look at us, that he looks within us. So he's not ultimately impressed with the skill that you have to offer him. He's impressed with the Savior's work within you. He's not really impressed with all the charisma that you and your personality bring to the equation. He's impressed by his own son, Christ's work on the cross for you. He's not really impressed with all the giftedness that he has given to you. He looks within you, and he sees the heart of godliness within you. And that's why he can say that he who is humble and contrite in spirit, that is the one to whom I will look because they're growing in Christ's likeness. They're understanding of what it means to be humble and to be together and to be living out these one another's. That last phrase, and trembles at my word. Trembling is not a picture of fear. It's a, it's a picture of reverence that they know who they are in light of who God is. And so we approach God's word with the heart and understanding of who he is. And so it's not really a passive reverence, but it's real obedience. You see, God has given us the Bible, and the Bible for us is not just like a museum for us to wander through and look at all the neat displays and the cool maps in the back. Like the Bible is is meant for us to to grab hold of, to believe in, to, to tremble with, And at the truth that's found in only the truth of Scripture. 
many of you, it might have been a few years, probably have been to a children's museum. Raleigh has a great one. Uh, so like the Bible is meant to be a, a children's museum where everything in the world is interactive. Like you're meant to grab it and share germs on it. And if you're really little, you tell your kids not to put that in their mouths for the entire time that you're there. Uh, but the Bible is meant for us to grab hold of, to play with, to mold and shape and understand the true tenets of it. It's meant for us. It comes with handrails by the power of the Spirit that we can understand the truth of God's Word. And in our interactions, we see it as glorious. We see it as real to us. It helps us understand life and godliness. And this glory is a picture of, of reverence. So we see this picture of humility is ultimately found in the way that you treat your Bible. What we see is the Bible is our source. It's how we know to become humble. And it gives us the motivation to be humble. Because you know what the Bible says? That you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God in his grace has made you alive together with him. And in these truths, there's nowhere in this that you read the Bible and walk away feeling good about yourself. You feel good about the God who loved you and sent his son for you. The Bible becomes for us our foundation of humility, that it is in error, it is truth without error. That The Bible is infallible. It is incapable of being wrong because it was breathed by God. And it is sufficient for every detail, every situation, and every circumstance of your life. And so because that's true, then when, as that applies to humility, it's not humble for us to walk into a situation and to compromise biblical truth to appease people. That's actually cowardly. So humility doesn't make you a pushover. Humility makes you stand on the right thing, and it makes you stand in the right way. And it makes you not divorce those two sentences, right? We like to stand for the right thing, but we like to do it in a way that's not very Christ-like. But what we see here is the call to Christian humility makes you stand on the source of the Bible with the example of Jesus as humility and brings those together. That the mark of Christian humility is one that, yes, I'm going to stand on the authority of Scripture, but I'm going to do so with the heart of my Savior, defines who we are. So from the wars of this world to the war within your own very heart, the call for us is to humble ourselves before the word of God. From society's acceptance of sin to the personal battle of sin within your own heart, the call of the Bible is for you to humble yourself before the word of God. And from the moments of cultural crisis to the moment of when Christ will return for his bride, the call for us is to humble ourselves before the word of God. And if we boil this down, what we learn about humility, it, it is ultimately an identity question. You ever thought about that? The moments and evidences of pride in your heart and in your life and in our life as a church is where there's an identity crisis, where we've replaced our King of Kings and Lord of Lords with a lowercase king and a lowercase Lord. And it ultimately becomes about identity. And so outside of the will of God and the word of God, where is your identity? Because it's in these spaces and places where we're tempted to, to compromise the source the source of our lives, the source of our truth, 
That's why the Bible is the all-sufficient source of humility. And we care about the source of things, right? That's why you buy bottled water. If you've ever been to the Coca-Cola factory in Atlanta, I hope you have the privilege to do that after you go to a Braves game, of course. But you go there and you walk away from the world of Coke. And one of the impressions that I had walking away from the world of Coke as a teenager, and I've remembered every single time I see a bottle of Dasani water, that I believe with all my heart they can, they can brand that and they can publish that all they want to. But when you drink Dasani, you are drinking Atlanta City water with a, with a nice little bottle and a nice little label. But it, it matters, and, and so we see the labels, and, and what do you see on, on bottled water? You say natural spring or natural source, or they tell you where in, in the glaciers this water is sourced from, and then you read it or watch a documentary on Netflix, and it blows all that in the water, but that's for another day. Like, the idea is we care about the source of things, because what we know, like, at the source, things are pure. But the further down the line you are from the source, what happens to pollutants? They come in. And they contaminate, and they contaminate, and they contaminate. And so the picture here is when we start drifting from the source of humility, a.k.a. the Word of God, then we need not be surprised when things begin to trickle in and to contaminate the truth that we're holding on to. So we've departed from the source of humility. What we see here is this picture that the Word of God is sufficient to call us there, and also to keep us there. And we keep these things in balance as we now then turn to what this looks like as we live this together as the church. That Jesus is our example of humility. The Bible is our source of humility. And then the church is our place of humility. And we understand on this fundamental level, like the way in which we live humility as Christians and as the church does not really make sense to the world around us. And it really should not in some senses, because it's meant to be lived together as one body. Remember from a couple weeks ago, we are one body with many members. And so in the world, this may look like that we stand on and do not compromise truth. And that's true. But from the world's perspective, they might view that as pride. But what we know is that's rooted in a source that they don't understand and an example they don't know. And so our stand for something is a picture of who we are. And the way in which we do that is in the context of the church, because Jesus is our example and the Bible is our source. We live this out. And a beautiful description of this is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, where he writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Speaking about spiritual maturity there, he goes on to describe it. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humbles. How, how do we live this? This is great. Look, I'm with you. Jesus is a great example of humility. Look, I'm with you. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is the word of God. But how do we put this into context in the life of the church? Clothe yourselves. And it's interesting because when he writes, he almost anticipates someone objecting to that. Like, oh, well, that just applies to them. Or that just applies to new Christians. Or that just applies to those type of Christians. But what does he say? Clothe yourselves, all of you. Nobody gets a hall pass from this one. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you. It's how we live this out. We put it on just like we put on clothes. 
And we are all very thankful that every single person here either clothed themselves or was clothed by someone this morning. And what do we know about that daily act is it is intentional and it is purposeful. And most of the time it's relatively stylish depending upon your kind of style. But the picture here is that humility takes that same level of intentionality. It takes that same level of purpose. And if we're honest, we just need to think humility is cool, right? It needs to be our style. I think somehow, somewhere in modern evangelical Christianity, we've made other things cool other than humility. And what we see here is in the life of Christ, it's like, no, 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 no. This is a picture of Christ-likeness. This is the penultimate. This is the very tip-top of the mountain of being Christ-like, is being humble. So we put it on. But we clothe ourselves with something. We clothe ourselves with humility. Now I know some of y'all are very slick dressers. And I know some of y'all have that favorite name brand shirt that every single one fits just right. Or maybe you have that favorite brand of shoe and you just can't wait to get a new pair because you've worn your old pair out. Like you all have those things that you just love and you just like. And the argument that we see in 1 Peter 5 is that, hey, this is the name brand. That humility is the name brand for the Christian life. Whatever you might think, whatever cool, like, cool cultural trends there are out there these days, like the cool cultural trend in the church is humility. And we start passing out shirts with a big H on them that we wear in and out every single time we walk in and out. Every single time we're out in the city going to the grocery store. Every single time we're walking into our workplace, a big H on our chest says, hey, I'm humble because I am a member of this local body and I serve the Lord Jesus and I stand on the truth of his word. That we're to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. It'd be a whole lot easier if that was not in that phrase, wouldn't it? It would be a whole lot easier if that were just directed towards us, that we could just clothe ourselves with humility and not have to direct that towards anyone else. But the Bible says that we clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. So what this means is this is ultimately an attitude more than it is an action. And so the temptation of our heart is that we can use false humility to manipulate one another, or we can use true humility to love one another. That's the call of the Christian life. We put this on and we do so with intention and with purpose to demonstrate the love of God. Why? It's the last phrase in this verse. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We boil all of this down to its bare bottom root. The question that we must answer this morning in light of the truth of God's word is this, do you want God's opposition or do you want God's grace? I hope I know the answer of your heart. And so what we see here is it's not like God just leaves us wondering how to get this. It's not like we have to recreate or remake our own formula on how to get this. He tells us, no, no, no. Here's how this works. That I oppose the proud, but I give grace to the humble. What that means for every single one of us gathered here today is there is both an individual application and a corporate application that we are to clothe ourselves, all of you, 
with humility towards one another. So as we come and as we go, we wear this clothing of humility towards one another. It affects all that we are as Christians and it affects all that we do as a church, that we clothe ourselves in humility. And so that's why when we walk to things and when we walk towards things like a balanced multi-generational model of ministry or endeavor towards a blended music style of service, we do so clothed in humility every single day with love for one another demonstrated towards one another. And every single opportunity we have is an act of worship. You see this? Every single time we demonstrate humility to someone else, we stand on the truth of scripture, when we live the example of Jesus and we practice that in the form of the church, that is an act of worship to God. And so when we see the call to be together, to live out the one another's of the New Testament is the call to live out these one another's with grace and truth, with love for one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So you see the church, every single time we gather, should be a gathering, a call to humility. In some ways, we should be the dry cleaners of your humble shirts that you clothe yourself in every single day. Every single time we gather, we scrub those shirts with the truth of the gospel as we sing the gospel to God and declare it to one another. As we seek the Lord in prayer together, you take that humble shirt to the dry cleaner and you scrub it clean. So when you walk out here, yeah, it's pressed. And that collar is popping. And you're looking good. Why? Because you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you been with Jesus? You remember that old hymn? Beautiful powerful truth that we clothe ourselves. Why? Because we're constantly calling each other above and beyond ourselves. Because I think that's really the heart of humility. When we as a church and we as a Christian, we're calling ourselves above and beyond ourselves. That we're lifting our eyes above the speedometer of the Christian life through the windshield to see the glories of God that we know the truth of Scripture to tell us to be. We live into humility. Why? So that we can see this, so that we can demonstrate this, so that we can live this one another together. So you see, pride says that you are more glorious than this context or this situation or this circumstance. But humility says that Christ is more glorious than this context and this situation and in this circumstance. And what the Bible teaches the church of Jesus Christ is, hey, I've given you my son as your example. I've given you my word as your source. And I've given you this body of many members called together to be one, to live this out. Why? Because it is a rehearsal of the gospel that we believe. That humility is a picture of the life that has been modeled for us. That Christ, our Savior, emptied himself. He poured out his love on the cross for you so that you could be filled with love for him. This is what happens for us on the cross, that he became nothing so that you could become something. It's called the imputed righteousness of God, that we stand righteous because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And you can't walk away from these truths with pride. You walk away from these truths humble, 
because you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. But God and his grace has demonstrated his love for us. Even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're here today and maybe you're feeling the balance of this. Maybe you feel like you're not good enough or you don't earn salvation or you don't deserve salvation. The truth of the gospel is you don't have to because you can't. But God in his grace sent his son anyway. And you can receive this free gift of salvation this morning by turning from your sin and yourself and turning to Jesus by grace through faith. For us, the gathered church, we can rally around this truth of prayer this morning. And there's a prayer that we're going to have to rehearse every day of our lives. God, would you empty me of all that I am so that you can fill me with all that you are. Now, we know the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We don't want him to just dwell. We want him to fill us, to overflowing. That's why it's a daily rehearsal, a daily walk with Jesus, a daily journey towards sanctification. God, empty me of all that I am so that you can fill me with all that you are. Because Jesus is my example of humility. The Bible is my source of humility, and I am committed that I'm going to live this out with this church that I love. How in the world is this humanly possible? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel comes to redeem, to restore, and to make broken things whole. It's the truth of what he has done for us in Christ in this moment, in these moments, and this truth sustains us, yes, at that moment of salvation, and yes, every single day in our journey towards Jesus for all eternity. Church, there's only truly and fully one way for us to come together, and that's by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, in his grace, he calls us there, and he keeps us there. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for all you've done for us on the cross of Christ on our, in, in our place. God, we are thankful that you haven't left us here on the earth, God, to scratch our heads and try and figure out how to make it through life on our own. No, no, God, you've given us your son, not just as our sacrifice, Father, but as our example. God, you've given us your, your word, and your word is, is the source for our lives. And God, you've given us your bride, your church, the place where we can rehearse this for all eternity. And God, we desire to do this because it's what you've commanded of us and for us. And God, it's a way in which we can live the gospel in the world around us. But they see this posture of our heart and they see it as otherworldly because it only comes through the power of Jesus Christ. And God, that's only found in our surrender. And so, God, as we call us to response this morning, we declare and proclaim again for the first time or for the thousandth, Father, we surrender all that we are to you. God, that you would be made famous. God, that you would be glorious in our lives as Christians and in this church that we love. So accomplish this, Lord Jesus, for your name and glory. Amen. Would you